available on this podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Christopher Kakuyo-sensei, and I'm the sensei with the Salt Lake Buddhist Fellowship. We are an independent, transsectarian, all-inclusive Western Sangha in the Mahayana tradition. The Way of Oneness podcast is a collection of our Dharma talks delivered at the Salt Lake Buddhist Sangha. Enjoy the Dharma talk. Hello, everybody. So we want to continue our conversation uh, from last Sunday regarding the, the five precepts, which we were talking about. Now, last Sunday, we introduced uh, the practice of the five, five precepts. Um, and today, we're going to talk about the first step on ethical action in the Buddha way. So the five precepts are affirming life or reverence for life, refrain from killing, nonviolence, be giving or true happiness, refrain from taking that which is not ours, true love or refraining from misusing sexuality and intimacy, loving and compassionate speech to refrain from lying and to proceed clearly or nourishment and healing, and that's to refrain from intoxicants. Now, each of these guidelines and trainings um, focus on the practice when we're not meditating to an even greater and more everyday Buddhism, an everyday mindfulness. Last Sunday, we shared the following. The five precepts are a field of practice, an ongoing conversation we have with ourselves and our actions and our motivations. They are a framework to help us become more intimate with ourselves. The five precepts are a field of practice. They are not a checklist of our faults or failures or how we are offending a God because of their violation. The precepts are not about keeping a God happy, not about behaviors that are important for us to be a good anything, but they are actions that can align us to how things really are, that align us to our highest aspirations of kindness, balance, harmony, and compassion. The Buddha never said, do this because I command you. As Thissarano Bhikkhu, the Theravadan monk and scholar, writes about the precepts, quote, if you want true happiness, this is what you should do. Not because the Buddha said so, but because this is how cause and effect work in the world, end quote. The Buddha understood that real happiness comes from ethical action. The precept is about action. He also knew that transformation comes from within and cannot be something coerced from without. The ethical training is to help us realize for ourselves to affirm life. That something that comes within us that flows outward spontaneously is this affirmation of life. So for today's talk, I want to talk about the first precept and that's the affirmation of life, to abstain from taking life, 
also, I like to think of this first set as a training of nonviolence. In the most basic sense, most of us, at least I hope so, are not murderers. The old thou shalt not kill of the Bible on the surface is like, of course, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not going to kill anybody. Um, and it seems the easiest of the commandments for the average person. And to refrain from killing in the five precepts seems similar. They're in the same neighborhood, but there is a lot more. Obviously, the first precept is about all of us not killing each other. But it also extends to the non-human world. The word pana in Pali refers to anything breathing and conscience or sentient. Towards such, we are to practice nonviolence towards animal as well as human. Again, the first precept is not just about killing each other, but also extends to the broader non-human world. The injunction is simple, especially for those who've taken their bodhisattva vows. We are taught not to take any life, period because a Buddha or a Bodhisattva does not harm and does not kill, period. This deep compassion for all living things, good or evil, is an expression of Namo Amida Mutsu, of what is at the core of us in our Buddha nature. But for most of us, we are far from being in touch with our innate Buddha nature. The teaching is straightforward, but the living it, the practice of it, is wrought with all kinds of challenges, problems, and hard realizations. As Roshi Reb Anderson has written in his book, Being Upright, sometimes it's easy and we practice the precept. Sometimes it's easy and we don't. Sometimes it's difficult and we still do practice it. Sometimes it's difficult and we don't, end quote. This is the reality of our engagement with this precept and all of the precepts. So one of the most common expressions um, of this by Western Buddhists is the choice to be vegetarian. And some of you have made that choice to eat meat or not eat meat. And the contemplation of such decision is a mindfulness training. That being said, that does not mean you have to be a vegetarian to be a good Buddhist. No. Again, the precepts are, are non-normative. They're not normative. In the West, it is said that our laws are based on the Ten Commandments. Okay, the Ten Commandments are how all people must act. The precepts are a very different form from the commandments in this way. When the Buddha gave the precepts, the precepts were not collective injunctions for the whole of society, but were given to individuals who wanted to wake up, who wanted to be Buddha. It is up to each individual to apply them in their practice and aspiration to wake up. This is especially true for lay practitioners such as us. 
It is an individual choice. It is not any one of our places to judge on how well else someone is doing in the precepts. Many of us fall on a continuum when it comes to our engagement with the first precept. Some of us eat meat, some don't. As a Sangha, our retreats are vegetarian, but no one is expected to be vegetarian. Our local Jodo Shinshu minister has a book of his Dharma talks, very good book on his Dharma talks, titled Teriyaki Priest. And the title of his book is because he's famous for his teriyaki chicken recipe. And there are others who feel that being a vegetarian isn't enough to be truly Buddhist and to practice the first precept. All must be vegan. It's interesting to note that in the Mahayana tradition, all living things are thought to be sentient on some level, trees, plants, even grass. And we know that they breathe, they do participate in respiration. And as new discoveries of science are showing us, there is a sort of sentience, communication among plants. So if we become legalistic and look at the prohibition or the refrain from, if we kill plants, therefore, we're not following the precepts. Now, I bring this up because in much of Buddhism, there is this inherent paradox. There is an inherent paradox in the five precepts. Life consumes life to live. That is a paradox. And I appreciate this from Bernie Glassman. He's a, of the Zen peacemakers, and they do an annual retreat to Auschwitz, of all places, to bear witness. And here he talks about such a paradox that's found in the first precept. And this was a Dharma talk given at that retreat. Quote, whereas the literal perspective sees this precept in absolute terms as either killing or not killing, Maintaining both the literal and the subjective standpoint requires the compromise of minimizing the destruction of life. The powerful irony at the heart of Zen practice is the strongest way to follow this precept of non-killing is by killing the self. If we can kill, that is, truly forget the self, we are at that very moment the infinite life of the Buddha and are this nurturing and fostering life in the fullest, most genuine manner possible, end quote. We know from our personal experiences that life is full of such paradoxes. I love that Buddhism does not run away from them or try to fix them, but has us engage and live with the paradox. Now, for those of you who have chosen the vegan lifestyle because of their practice, a deep bow. For those who have not, a deep bow. Is that also a paradox? This is not the tradition that you were raised in. There is nothing in the teaching that says you have to be a vegetarian or a vegan. Either injunction would be new to the Buddha. 
It is for each individual to practice where they are at. Did you know that the Buddha ate meat when offered to him? Did you know that the monastic rule against eating meat was that the monks were not to eat it if it was killed specifically for them? As long as that held true, it would be okay for them to eat. Better to eat the meat than to have the loss of life be for nothing. Interesting, the only meat that the monks were forbidden to eat in the vinya was human and tiger. The Buddha was practical, was practical because when monks would seek alms, the monk was to learn to take whatever was given, showing no preference. But the monk was never to kill an animal for food. When it comes to karma, intention is the core of the teaching. It wasn't as much the eating of the meat as it was the state of the mind that brought the animal to its death. It was the action of the doer and the intention of the doer that was the concern. Now, much of this is workable when you have a society large enough to supply food to wandering monks. If you do not, or if you live somewhere where there is no other food source, would it be allowable to kill for food? Again, it's important to note that not all Buddhists are vegetarian. Does that mean they are not good Buddhists? Again, Buddhism is not dogmatic. It asks us to engage with the teachings. We learned last week from Peter Harvey that, quote, Buddhism asks us to investigate the circumstances of our lives and to live with difficult questions and address them as best we can in the moment to see how far we can go from refraining killing in our lives, knowing that the extent to which we are willing to go may change and evolve as we practice along the path, end quote. And here is another such reflection, this time from Tetsu Uno Sensei, quote, there is a universe of difference between believing that humans have the right to take other forms of life with impunity and having to do so with deep sense of shame, regret, and repentance. The least a person can do then is to be grateful and not to waste nature's gifts. When we see that human beings do not occupy a special privileged space in the web of life, then humility and gratitude should be the natural and spontaneous response. Yet the difficulty in arriving at this understanding is immense." End quote. So how many of us have contemplated this very thing about our relationship with food and living and really look at it? When I used to be a, a Latter-day Saint, um, when we would have conversations about the word of wisdom, and specifically in the word of wisdom, where it said that you shall not eat meat except in times of winter and famine. Um, so there is this prescription within the word of wisdom towards a vegetarian lifestyle. And people will get more offended and argumentative towards that than smoking or drinking. It was very fascinating to me. We all have very different relationships to food and 
those are learned, and most of the time they're just simply never thought of. The Buddha asks us to contemplate this, to think about this. When was the last time that you felt shame over eating a juicy burger or chicken tenders? And it had nothing to do with gaining weight or being healthy. There are times when I eat meat and there are times when I do not because of my engagement or non-engagement with this precept. It's been a while since I have felt any shame for eating a burger, seeing the life given for me to live. Really not until writing this talk this week. And then again, it made me think about my relationship with food and the living world and that which keeps me alive. But here's the core of my shame. The core of my shame lies in my boundless ingratitude. My ingratitude. It is hard. It's hard for us to express this gratitude, to feel this gratitude, because we've become so numb to what has been offered to us, so cut off separate, siloed from the cost. Here is what the practice is about. It is less about some strict adherence to some rule or commandment, but about turning our hearts and minds toward our relationship with the living world. And in many ways, it's so much harder for any one of us than probably any time in history. Our industrial farming, farming cuts us off from the reality of what many of us do daily without a thought of what we are doing or the other beings it impacts. Cellophaned and packaged so neatly and clean, we have developed this unconscious idea that we eat meat, not animals, as if they were somehow different. We are separated, sheltered from the cost, cut off from the life that was taken to give us life. The paradox. Most of us, if we had to butcher a cow or a chicken ourselves, may still eat meat, but I can say with a certainty, we would eat much less with more gratitude. Now, death for life is an inevitable fact of life. But that does not mean that we do not affirm life. Indigenous people affirm the lives of animals they hunt. They have ceremonies and prayers for the animals that gave them their lives. It is said if a young man starts to um, act out within their community, that it is probably because they took a life, a deer, some food, without doing a ceremony or sharing gratitude. And that's the result. In some indigenous cultures, they see the animals as their ancestors returning back to life to help feed them and to keep them alive. There is a similar example in Buddhism. This example is from Tasaka Kibara in his essay, Bodhisattvas Everywhere. And I love this quote. The thought really hit me. I eat fish. I eat meat and daikon. Daikon is a kind of radish. The daikon itself wants to live. It grows up, blossoms with flowers. But we take the daikon at the prime of its life and eat it so things which I had thought of as being in the world of animals has become things of my own world, 
of myself. As I thought in this way, I began to feel that everything, such as fish, animals, daikon, come to appear to me as bodhisattvas. They sacrifice their own bodies and lives to sustain my own life." End quote. The one way to engage with the first precept as part of our practice is when we may take life, such as eating to stay alive, that we acknowledge with gratitude that the world is sustaining us through the sacrifice of others. Awareness and remembrance connect us to all of life. At the Zen Center Green Gulch Farm, each year they do an annual ceremony to remember all the intentional and unintentional killing that is part of farming and gardening. And remembrance is a mindfulness activity. So in the ceremony, they dedicate any merit, any good that comes out of this memory to, to these forgotten ones. And here are just a few lines from their ceremony. Quote, we dedicate the merit of this ceremony to little sparrows, quails, robins, house finches who have died in our strawberry nets. Young cooper hawks who flew into our sweet pea trellis and broke its neck. To the numerous orange-bellied newts who died in our shears, in our irrigation pipes, by our cars, by our feet. Slugs and snails have pursued for years, feeding you to the ducks, crushing you, trapping you, picking you up off and tossing you over fences. Gophers and moles trapped and scorned by us, and also watched with love, admiration, and awe for your mindfulness. We dedicate this merit to manure worms and earthworms severed by spades and numerous microscopic life forms in our compost systems who've been burned by sunlight. And to all the plants who ha we have shunned, poisoned hemlock, pigweed, bindweed, stinging nettle, bull pistol, we call a plant we have removed by dividing you and separating you and dedicating you to no longer grow where you will. All to these we honor and remember. In this kind of practice, we turn our hearts towards the interdependence of all things and acknowledge the interweb of being, which we are just a small part of. We are taking our first steps into cultivating the compassion of a Buddha. We learn from this that even when certain activities require the taking of a life to live, we can affirm the life that was taken. It makes us tender to the living world. The other day, we had a very large wolf spider in, um, in our bedroom. And we planned and figured out how could we capture the spider and then take it outside and not try to kill it. We were successful with a lot of um, anxiousness and fascination at this creature who was in our home, who was about that big. There have been times during a rainstorm when, they, when the worms come out and I remember one day I was trying to put the worms back into the grass because I was just wanting them to live. In the futility of my action, I still felt connected to the one worm, the other worm, and the next worm that I was trying to help. 
or the day I came home after being gone for a couple of days and the cat food that was left out now had a family of maggots living in it. And how I picked it up and I looked at them and I put them into the garbage disposal and they were moving in the sink and I was like disgusted. And at the same time, I saw the life in them and they began to glow for me. And still, I put them down the garbage disposal. Namo Amida Mutsum. That's the paradox of what we're talking about. And my honor to what I saw. And they also the reality that maggots can't live in my home. As I said earlier, the precepts are given, the precepts are not given to the society as a whole. When we start to think we're a better Buddhist because we meditate longer, and I'm a better Buddhist because I'm a vegetarian, those feed ego. That becomes a form of spiritual materialism. It is not. It is to each individual. The Buddha gave advice to religious leaders um, and political leaders, but he never said any of them must do what he said. He never established a, a formula or a policy for them to give. The Buddha worked one person at a time. He encouraged all to live the precepts if they wanted to be happy and awake. Even though the precepts are not directed at a community directly, they are all about community. The precepts are about action and intention. And I love this from Wendell Berry, quote, to act in short is to live. Living is a total act. Thinking is a partial act. And one does not live alone. Living is a communal act. He goes on to quote Emerson, I grasp the hand of those next to me and take my place in the circle to suffer and work, end quote. And I love the lack of sentimentality in these words. For us, the suffering is the first noble truth, dukkha, the acknowledgement that in the midst of life there is suffering, and for us, the work is the practice. And the precepts can be seen as the practice. This is what we do as a sangha. We take each other's hands in our suffering, and we do the work. What precept is more at the heart of community than affirming life? Our relationship to the land and the inhabitants upon the land is all about non-harming and seeing ourselves as part of a much larger community. All the precepts and trainings are about selflessness and the affirming of life. It's to help us to see, not from the primacy of the egoic self, but from the broader view, to see the inconceivable web, web of life that we are a small part. As Reverend Gilme Kabose Sensei has taught, there is no I apart from others. These things are not simple for us to see in our hyper-individualistic age. Thought is a partial act. We are called to act by the Buddha. Here are a few lines from Craig Oriana in his essay on Buddhist ethics. Quote, 
The Buddhist theory of selflessness, when considered in terms of the individual and his or her place in the community, really becomes something of great social power, an extended interpretation of selfhood, namely the idea that I am everybody in the community, end quote. So the first precept is also about protecting ecosystems and standing up to systems that degrade it and that also degrade minority communities. Affirming life is deeper than just refraining from killing, but it is the active life of respecting and honoring life, of nonviolence, of actively bearing witness when lives are not being affirmed as what we experience in our country right now. Now, some say that there should be no politics in a Buddhist group, but I say that the precept of affirming life calls us to stand up for our great earth bodhisattva, our planet, and to stand up for racial justice. Ariana goes on to write, quote, to put another way, the doctrine of selfishness requires that a Buddhist view themselves as being, in fact, everyone in society. The societal implications of this viewpoint are, of course, powerful. Her poverty becomes my poverty, his tragedy, my tragedy. And when combined with the model of active engagement offered by the Bodhisattva ideal in which personal health is achieved by helping others, end quote. This is not a solitary path. The One Earth Sangha has a great example of this affirmation, this first precept of an affirmation of life, and it's based on a practice of vows, and you can look it up, and it's based on this, this precept, and it is not apolitical. Now, here are the lines from their offering. And this is a vow that anybody can go and, and, and take. And it can be part of your affirming life precept practice. And here are the vows. Quote, I vow to live in earth, on earth, more lightly and less violently in the food, products, and energy I consume. I vow to commit myself daily to the healing of the world and the welfare of all beings to discern and replace human systems of oppression and harm. I vow to invite personal discomfort as an opportunity to share the challenge of our collective liberation. I vow to draw inspiration, strength, and guidance from the living earth, from our ancestors and future generations and from our siblings of all species. I vow to help others in their work for the world and ask help when I need it. And I vow to pursue a daily spiritual practice that clarifies my mind, strengthens my heart, and supports me in living these vows." End quote. A whole life of awakening can be found in these simple vows. You could spend your whole life working with these. On the Buddhist path, we are encouraged to be explorers and contemplatives. We are encouraged to move from the partial act of thinking 
and move into the whole act of being. The first precept is the primary precept because the precepts, all the other precepts arise out of the first precept of affirming life. It is because it is the beating heart of the Buddha, the heart of compassion, the heart that affirms all living beings, regardless of what they have done or left undone in the invitation of come as you are. Namo Amida Butsu. I want to close with a few lines from Thich Nhat Hanh and his ideas of ways to practice the first precept. He says, quote, aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating the insight of inner being, compassion and learning, and ways to protect the lives of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to kill to support any act of killing in the world, in my thinking or in my way of life. Seeing that harmful actions arise from anger, fear, and greed, and intolerance, I will cultivate openness, non-discrimination, and non-attachment to views in order to transform violence, fanaticism, and dogmatism in myself and in the world." End quote. For those who have taken the precepts formally, I invite you to have a conversation with them and to look at ways in your life that you can apply them even in the smallest incremental way to expand them from where you are right now. And I want to share something. For all of us, the engagement with the invitation to affirm life, may it help us to realize that living is a total act and to arrive where we can say in the words of the poet Rilke, quote, I live my life in widening circles that reaches out across the world. Namo Amida Bootsui. Thank you for listening. To learn more about our fellowship, please go to saltlakebuddhist.org. We look forward to having you here again. Namo Amida Bootsui.